Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. In this episode, we're reporting back from the Manova Global Health Summit, exploring the latest advances in health technology, such as CRISPR-based gene therapies, infection-fighting viruses, and a potential cure for HIV. Plus, veteran health columnist Jane Brodie's advice for a healthy life, and reflections on progress in cancer from US journalist and advocate Katie Couric. As the saying goes, get to know the future it's where you're going to spend the rest of your life. Last month, I headed out to Minneapolis for the Manova Global Summit on the Future of Health. Three jam-packed days listening to some leading thinkers talking about how to change the future of healthcare. The sessions covered everything from a pair of very perky teenagers who've developed a mental health app to a project using drones to deliver blood supplies in rural Rwanda elderly care robots to AI pandemic prediction, topped off with an appearance from actor, activist and icon Jane Fonda. Alas, I did not get to interview her. I'm very sorry. Perhaps my favourite talk of the summit came from Stephanie Strathdee, Associate Dean of Global Health Sciences at UC San Diego, who's taking an unusual approach to treating antibiotic-resistant superbug infections using tiny bacteria-busting viruses called phage. But she only started working on phage therapy by accident when her husband fell ill while they were on holiday in Egypt back in 2015. My husband acquired a superbug infection, which is a bacteria that's resistant to multiple antibiotics, and he was dying. The doctor said, there's nothing else we can do. And I thought to myself, well, if he's going to die, I want to know that I did everything I could to save him. So I hit the internet and I did my research on my own and I found a hundred year old forgotten cure, bacteriophage. Phage are viruses that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria and they were discovered a hundred years ago. And they even had a heyday in the 1920s and 30s where they were used to treat bacterial infections. But then when penicillin came along, (laughs) they were forgotten and left on the shelf, except in some parts of the former Soviet Union where they're still used today. But this was experimental treatment, and we needed to see whether or not it was going to even get approved by the FDA. So how do you go about turning a bacteriophage, this little virus, into an appropriate treatment for someone's infection? Well, first you have to find the right phage that match the bacteria that you're trying to kill. So it's both an advantage and a disadvantage that phage are very specific. They only match to certain bacteria and they leave the rest alone. But that means that you need to find the phage that will kill the bacteria that is the one that's causing your illness. And there's 10 million trillion trillion phages on the planet. Like that's 10 to the power of 31. So there's the the oldest and most populous organism on the planet. So you need to go on a phage hunt. That is a big screen. I wouldn't want that to be my PhD project. Well, I was horrified when I realized that this was going to be a daunting task. After the doctors that were treating my husband agreed to treat him with this, they said, you have to go out and find the phages that match his infection if we're going to do this. And then the FDA has to agree to it. So I went back to the internet and I made a list of doctors that were studying phage that attack his type of superbug. And it was a mighty short list, at least in North America. And I knew we didn't have much time. So I wrote Total Strangers and sent 
them a picture of my husband lying in a coma and I said, please, please, please help me. Well, surprisingly, within 24 hours, a researcher, a total stranger from Texas A&M University, Dr. Rye Young, responded and said, you know, I'm the same age as your husband. I'm about to retire. I've been working on phage for a long time and I'd like to see it actually, you know, do some good someday. And if this case works, it would be a game changer in the field. So then what happened? Do you get like a little vial of phage coming through the post? What, what happened next? Well, you won't believe where they found the phages that matched the bacteria. Okay, uh, do I want to know? Is it going to be somewhere really gross like in a septic tank? Uh-huh. Oh, no. no. <laughs> well, you know, when you're trying to kill bacteria, especially the bacteria that are in your gut, the best place to go is in sewage because that's where you'll find the perfect predator that will kill it. And so Dr. Young's lab turned their whole place into a command center and a PhD student, Adriana, slept in the laboratory for a couple of weeks, found four phages that matched and we were over the moon. The grossest project. So you get loads of poop, you get the bacteria, you grow the phage, you get loads of phage, you put them in the person and then kind of the big plot point, what happened to your husband? Well, first we actually had to purify the phage. That turned out to be the hardest part because, you know, essentially you're, you know, taking something that was in sewage and oh, you're also yeah. adding lots of bacteria to it. The bacteria die and there's all this debris from the bacterial cell wall, etc. And so we had to involve a number of laboratories, but we also had the Navy stepped in. The U.S. Navy also had a phage library because this organism that my husband was infected with. Its nickname is Arachobacter because so many veterans come back from the Middle East with it. It's really important that you have multiple phage that match the bacteria you're trying to kill because if there's a hidden reservoir of bacteria that the phage don't reach, then the phage are useless because the bacteria becomes resistant. This seems like an incredible amount of work to call in the lab, to call in the Navy, to find the phage, to grow it up and then to purify it. How long did that actually take? Believe it or not, it only took three weeks. I wrote Dr. Young on February 21st, and the day that we first administered phage therapy was March 15th. So people had worked around the clock, total strangers, to save the life of, a, of a one man. And it was just an incredible effort. I, I just get shivers just even thinking about it to this day. So Tom actually was so sick, though. Um, he was in a coma. He didn't know what was going on. And I had signed the consent form for kidney dialysis the day we started phage therapy. That's because they said, well, his lungs are failing, his heart is failing, and now if his kidneys fail, that's game over. And so um, he was considered to be within hours of dying. So we injected these phages first into these catheters or drains in his abdomen because that was closest to where his infection was. And he lived through that. The next day, you know, he seemed like no better, but no worse. And then the Navy phages were ready next. Um, and we knew that these were more virulent and more powerful. We injected those a billion viruses or billion phages per dose into his bloodstream. And three days later, he woke up, lifted his head off the pillow and kissed his daughter's hand. And everybody in the ICU freaked out. The day that he, you know, got off the ventilator was only a couple of weeks later. And um, he had to learn how to swallow, how to talk, everything. And he said to me, what did I miss? And I said, well, you've been in a coma two months and it's now, you know, end of March of 2016. And I said, and 
Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee to be president of the United States for the Republican Party. And we saved your life with purified sewage from Texas. And he went, oh my God, I'm hallucinating again. <laughs> that is something to wake up to, uh, certainly. So then, having done this incredible miracle, how do you actually then start to make that viable? Because presumably not everyone can commandeer a whole lab for three weeks to just make their personal phage. Absolutely. But, you know, this is personalized phage therapy, um, and it can occur much more easily without having to go to sewage every single time. Because imagine having a phage bank, essentially a library of phages that are already characterized. So they're sequenced. We know how, what combination to add them with antibiotics, etc. And you can keep expanding it to match a superbug library. And if these existed on every continent, then you, you could actually find phage to match bacterial infections within a couple of days. Now compare that to an antibiotic that takes 10 to 15 years to develop and about a billion dollars. I mean, there's no comparison. Stephanie has now written a book about her experience called The Perfect Predator, written together with Thomas Patterson. And she's working on bringing these antibacterial viruses to the world through IPATH, the Innovative Centre for Phage Therapy at UCSD. She'd be happy to hear from anyone who needs her help, and you can get the details of her book and her centre from the page for this show at geneticsunzip.com. Now from good viruses to bad ones. The Minova Summit heard about another incredible medical miracle from Cambridge University's Professor Ravi Gupta. He hit the headlines earlier this year after apparently completely curing a man of HIV through a stem cell transplant. Known as the London patient because of where he was treated, this man was the second in the world to have ever been successfully cured of HIV in this way. The first, more than a decade ago, was a man called Timothy Brown, or the Berlin patient as he used to be known. I asked Ravi to explain what had made this Berlin patient's cure successful and what he and the London patient could teach us about a potential cure for HIV. Over 10 years ago, a case was reported called the Berlin patient. This was an individual who was actually an American who had HIV and then developed a quite severe blood cancer called AML. And this cancer needed a bone marrow transplant in order to cure it. And so the Berlin patient who was HIV positive underwent this um, stem cell transplant, but his doctors in Germany managed to find a donor whose cells were resistant to HIV. And this was something we've known about for some time, that certain individuals, less than 1%, are immune to HIV. And in that case, they used these resistant cells to transplant into the Berlin patient, combined with a quite heavy chemotherapy and radiation. And this resulted in a cure. So this means that he has none of the virus left. He is completely, completely cured of HIV. In the Berlin case, we think yes, because it was almost a decade without any anti-HIV treatment and the patient had no sign of HIV detected. That was documented as the first cure of HIV. And what made those immune cells so special that they couldn't be infected by HIV so then this person could no longer harbour the virus? So around 20 years ago, people realised that there were certain individuals who couldn't be infected with HIV despite repeated exposure and high-risk behaviour. And uh, when the genetics was done, it was found that they had a mutation in a particular protein that sits on the surface of your white blood cells. And that mutation prevents HIV from getting inside the cells to infect them in the first place. So that renders you immune, essentially. So like the door's locked, they're not coming in? 
That's exactly right. There are a number of theories as to why this mutation arose in individuals. It's exclusively found in Europeans, and so it has been suggested that uh, this enabled people to survive certain diseases such as smallpox. So let's jump forward and talk about another patient, the London patient. Who is that? Uh, this is an individual who was diagnosed with HIV in 2003 who developed a different type of blood cancer from the Berlin patients and this blood cancer was something called Hodgkin lymphoma uh, and is related to HIV and its effects on the immune system and this individual was not responsive to standard chemotherapy for Hodgkin lymphoma and so the last resort in that case is a transplant using cells from another matched individual, an unrelated individual and so we managed to find cells that were suitable but also had this mutation that was demonstrated in the Berlin patient. And so the London patient underwent this stem cell transplant procedure. And the result was? So immediately after the transplant, we did a number of tests for HIV to see if we could detect it, and it seemed that there wasn't any detectable HIV after this transplant procedure. We then had to gain ethical approval to stop his antiviral medication, his anti-HIV treatment. And so we did that and then stopped the anti-HIV drugs a further 16 months after the transplant. And then after that period, we've had two years now of no sign of HIV. So fingers crossed, this looks like another complete cure. I think it is now highly likely that this is a complete cure because we've had no sign after two years. So that's two patients, Berlin and London. There are an awful lot of people living with HIV in the world. How can we take those almost miracle cures and actually make that something that could benefit the many, many people living with HIV today? Um, part of the answer to that lies in the fact that we wanted to do it a second time, partly because we weren't sure what we required to gain a cure. In the Berlin patient's case, he had two rounds of chemotherapy and two rounds of radiation to the whole body. That is, that's mm. quite hardcore. That's right. So that's a very severe form of uh, treatment and it was needed for the cancer. So, of course, a number of questions were raised as such as, do you need such severe chemotherapy? So in our, our individual, we used much milder chemotherapy and there was no radiation involved. So we now know that you don't need radiation don't need certain chemotherapeutic drugs. And so what we've been doing is, is we're on a learning curve of what the requirements may be to achieve a cure. Ravi Gupta from Cambridge University. Although the transplant treatment is exciting and could be curative, it's not without risk. And using chemotherapy drugs to take out the immune system isn't a viable option for everyone. Instead, Ravi and his team are starting to look at CRISPR to genetically modify patients' immune cells so they can't be infected with HIV. It's early days, but a potentially exciting and game-changing application of this new gene-editing technology. Another person I spoke to who's hoping to use CRISPR to cure disease is Vinnie Jaskilaranga, the founder and CEO of Hunterian Medicine, who's found a new way to package up the molecular components of CRISPR so they can be delivered more effectively into cells in the body. That's the molecular scissors that snip out DNA, known as Cas9, and the guide RNA that acts as a map, telling the scissors exactly where to cut. Now, while CRISPR works fine in cells growing in the lab, getting these tools into cells inside a living human body is the final hurdle in turning this incredible technology into effective treatments. And it is turning out to be remarkably hard. So if we have cells growing in a dish, it's very easy to do things, bombard it, create little pores in the membranes, zap it with electricity. We can get that stuff into the cells when we're dealing with cells in culture. 
we can't do that for people, right? We can't, you know, hook them up. <laughs> they don't like being zapped. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> there's all kinds of issues around that. So, you know, when we're dealing with things with people, we need to ensure that we have something that is extremely safe and then also effective. This is an incredibly difficult problem. Because I guess when you're thinking about, say, if you're trying to repair a gene in muscle cells, you can't just do one muscle cell. You've got to do all the muscle cells in a person. What are the kind of challenges that we're facing of trying to get this stuff into different types of tissue in the body? Right. Well, so I think, you know, if you think about the premise is that it's easy to do it in culture, that actually tells us something. And, you know, there are cells of the body that we can take out, we can edit in culture and put it back in. And as we were talking about, you know, bone marrow cells, blood cells, you know, those are the kinds of things that are amenable to those types of, you know, manipulations. For the vast majority of diseases, right, we're going to have to get CRISPR to those tissues or those cells in the body. So if you have an eye disease, for example, we need to get CRISPR into those eye cells, and we don't need to get it to the rest. And in fact, it'd be better not to get it into the rest of the cells of the body where it doesn't matter. And from a standard of safety, it's always going to be much better to target your treatments to the cells that are going to need it. You're looking at this technology, you're looking at the scissors, you're looking at the guides, you're looking at disease cells. How did you start thinking about, right, how do we get these into there? Well, to be honest, it was totally serendipitous. <laughs> I love so, stories like yeah. this. Come on. <laughs> so I was working on a specific aspect of it. In fact, I was working on the RNA component and how to turn it on. So we can't just stick genes into cells and expect them to you know, turn on and you know, be expressed. We need to provide the instructions so the cell knows, okay, here is a gene. Let's turn this on and make this in the cell. And so I happened to be working on one specific example of this. So what I did is I, I was cloning this region out of the genome, so I was taking it out of the human genome, and then I was going to stick the RNA component of CRISPR on there to uh, express it in cells. And when I did that, I ran into another gene, and it happened to be a gene that was oriented in the other direction, and that gene happened to be a protein-coding gene. So when one looks at it, it's a very, very small region in the human genome. And what it does is it produces a protein on one side and an RNA on the other side. And so if you work on CRISPR and you see this little region that can express the two types of biological entities that make up this CRISPR system, an RNA and a protein, you will immediately be able to do the math and see that it falls under the packaging capacity for the gold standard delivery, which is AAV. So just to unpack that a little bit, so what you did, you, you found that there's a little region of DNA, effectively a switch, that will turn on both a protein going one way on a piece of DNA and an RNA going the other way, and CRISPR is the protein scissors and the RNA guide, so you're like, aha, bingo. Tell me a little bit more about why getting that size down was so important. So AAV, that's a, a virus. What's the connection there? AAV is a fascinating virus. So AAV is generally assumed to be the gold standard way of delivering cargo into cells. And it has an incredible track record. It's been used in over 230 trials worldwide, you know, largely without any toxicity or any known side effects. This is the reason why the field has essentially converged on AAV as the gold standard for getting things into people. 
Now, the one problem, though, for avian, this is something that people have known for a long time, is that it's very small. It's physically small. And so there's only a set amount of DNA that we can put in there. So we've got the two components together. You've got your AAV, your little modified virus, your delivery vehicle. You've got this wonderful two-way switch that enables you to get the CRISPR scissors and the guide into this tiny, tiny space, package them together. What I still want to know is then, how do you get that into the right tissues, into the right part of the body to have an effect? And what sort of diseases do you have in your sites for this technology? Yeah, so there, I think there's two answers to that. One is, you know, there's several different flavors, if you will, of AAV. And the nice thing about that is those have uh, specificity for different tissues. So that means, you know, we can inject all the same stuff but use a different flavor AV into the bloodstream. And with some of them, we will hit muscle cells. With other ones, you know, we may hit, you know, lung cells or, you know, neurons or whatever. So that gives us kind of a tool chest to pick and choose how we get things to specific cells and tissues. So which diseases are you starting to tackle first? We are most interested in diseases of the eye and, and brain. We think that you know, the field and a lot of these newer technologies will demonstrate that in those tissues first. Genes that are related to vision, vision loss, that's certainly an area that we're looking at. We are also interested in the vasculature of the eye and in the brain as well. For the eye, a common disease or something that people may be aware of would be age-related macular degeneration. And the current standard of treatment is to go in for either monthly or every other month injections in the eye. And I don't know anybody that would enjoy no. getting... Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And, you know, the benefit of CRISPR, what the promise is, is one-time treatments, one-time cures. So if we can do that, if we can succeed in doing that and getting the number of treatments down to one, you know, we think that that would be just such an enormous benefit. That's Vinnie Jaskula-Ranga from Hunterian Medicine speaking to me at the Minova Global Health Summit. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Please, please do take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference when it comes to helping more people discover the show and spreading the word about the wonderful world of genetics. For all this exciting talk about CRISPR and cures, it's important to remember that there's a lot that we can do to protect and maintain our own health, especially when it comes to cancer. One of the most inspiring speakers at the Minova Summit was journalist and cancer advocate Katie Couric. She was the first person to reveal her colon on national television nearly 20 years ago. It may seem tame by today's show-and-tell standards, but she set the benchmark for cancer awareness. I asked her why she decided to bear her insides to the public in the first place. So this was in 2000, and two years before that, my husband Jay had died of colorectal cancer at 42. He had just turned 42. And during the course of his illness, I learned so much about this very deadly form of cancer, the second leading cancer killer of men and women in the United States. And I decided that given my perch as a morning show anchor, 
that I could do a huge public service by educating people about the screening technique that can prevent colon cancer, can stop it in its tracks, and has, you know, can lead to a 92% cure rate when the disease is detected early. So I felt a real obligation to demystify and destigmatize a procedure that people really didn't understand, could barely pronounce. I mean, it's kind of like butt stuff as well. It's yes, like, exactly. Ew. You know, well, you know, it's interesting because I think there's no reason to get squeamish about it because we all, if we're lucky, have colons and they serve a very important purpose. And if you look at the evolution of breast cancer awareness in the 1950s, the New York Times would have ads for support groups and they'd call it cancer of the chest wall because people didn't say the word breast in polite conversation. So similarly, I think there was a discomfort about talking about colons and rectums and bowels, but it's sort of silly when you think about it. And, you know, I had no hesitation. I was so happy and grateful that I had a platform from which I could educate people and prevent them from getting this disease. And as a result of my on-air colonoscopy, which was not live, a lot of people say it was live, and I say I'm not that brave, but colon cancer screenings, colonoscopies in particular, increased 20%. And if you think about that compliance rate, that translates to many, many lives saved as a result. On television, you know, we did it tastefully. We did it with a sense of humor. We didn't show when I got a little sick to my stomach with my final glass of the inappropriately named Go Lightly, which was the press. I was like, I don't know, is this a joke that they named this Go Lightly? I got a little sick to my stomach. I didn't show that because I didn't want to discourage people. But yeah, I just went for it. And people came up to me and said, I believe your advice saved my life. I got screened and it prevented me from, you know, I I didn't get full out colon cancer. So I got really such positive feedback. I'm really glad I did it. I'm afraid that I started a whole trend of TV anchors oversharing a bit. Oh, God. What's the worst that someone's got out on the I think I saw someone getting a prostate exam on television, and I was like, um, maybe it's bad that I started this. But, you know, I think overall this um, intersected with people taking care of their own health and feeling more responsible and becoming their own best health advocates. So I think, you know, on balance, it's a really positive development in, in the discourse and for overall health in general. You're continuing to use your media platform to reach people, to investigate challenging issues. When you're talking about something like cancer, and I know you're very involved in Stand Up to Cancer, right. which is a, a massive program of research and communication, How do you make sure that the messages that you're telling people are accurate? Well, we rely on science and on scientists. I think we're very careful and conservative, and we want to be a legitimate and respected and trusted source for information for people on all things cancer. You know, I think the internet is a very scary place when you're diagnosed with any disease, but particularly cancer. If you read things that aren't necessarily true or vetted, 
I talked to a very renowned cancer clinician at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and he said the people who should be writing about cancer are too busy treating it. And the people, you know, who are writing about it don't know the latest information because they've never treated it. So I think you just have to take it with a grain of salt. But we are very, very careful about the information that we put out. And um, I think Stand Up to Cancer has done an incredible job. And certainly as a journalist, I want to make sure that I don't give people false hope. Particularly public figures have to be careful about what they're communicating in terms of finding the right treatment, et cetera, because not only do not all people have access to it, but, you know, cancer is a million different diseases and a million different biologies. And sometimes, as you know, what works for one person may not work for someone else because of all kinds of reasons. What excites you most about the current crop of cancer research and the treatments that are starting to come through? Well, I think immunotherapy is incredibly exciting. I think what I'm excited about is we have this convergence of all kinds of things that are happening that will move the ball forward. Data science is so important to really measure the efficacy of certain treatments and drugs. You have mapping the human genome, so obviously genetics and our better understanding of cancer-causing genes is really an exciting area as well. I think we have all kinds of different doctors getting involved and scientists and chemists and engineers. I think it's just a much more multi-dimensional approach to cancer, and that I think is really, really exciting. The other thing I think is exciting is the opportunity as journalists to be telling these stories, to work out, okay, how do we communicate them to the public authentically, ethically, accurately? What do you see are the opportunities and the frontiers in communicating with people about the kinds of progress and the kinds of issues and the information that they should be aware of? Well, I think that, you know, the media writ large could do a much better job of explaining cancer in general. There was a recent documentary about Jim Allison, who won the Nobel Prize called Breakthrough, which helped illustrate how he found the checkpoint inhibitor that was preventing immunotherapy from actually working on some cancer cells, because cancer is a very, very clever disease. So I think that we could do an even better job of helping people understand. I mean, I think you ask the average person, what is immunotherapy and how does it work? And it's very hard to understand it. So I think first and foremost, the basics could be better explained. And, you know, I think it's very challenging because you don't want to give people false hope, but you also want to let them know the latest science and when something is actually working. But I think we have more opportunities than ever before through the various platforms to tell these stories and to keep the movement going. So, you know, I think as always with any good storytelling, it has to have a personal narrative and you have to hit an emotional note for people so that they can relate and connect with the person you're describing. And for someone like you, you never asked for the role that you found yourself in. When you look back on what you have achieved through using your voice to tell the stories of your family, to share this kind of information, how does that make you feel? Um, Well, obviously, I feel 
very proud of the work I've done vis-a-vis -vis cancer research. You know, doctors have said to me, Katie, you've probably saved more lives than we have in our whole lifetime, which is, you know, it's an incredibly gratifying feeling to think that people are walking around and living their lives with people they love because they actually took action because of something I helped them understand. And then the idea that we're supporting all these scientists and making sure they can do this life-saving work, that makes me feel just so great because they're all brilliant and they're so hardworking and they care so deeply that, you know, to be able to be the wind beneath their wings to sound really super cheesy is, is a really exciting and wonderful and gratifying thing. If you want to hear more from Katie and her journalism on health and many other important topics, you can follow her on Instagram, you can subscribe to her daily email newsletter, Wake Up Call, and even listen to her podcast, after you finish listening to this one, of course, by heading over to her website. That's katiekurick.com. K-A-T-I-E-C-O-U-R-I-C. I also managed to catch up with Jane Brody, the personal health columnist for the New York Times, who distilled 50 years of writing about good health into a searingly insightful talk. It was a breath of fresh air and a shot of realism among a lot more of the gee whiz stories that we were hearing on stage. So I wanted to dig a bit deeper into what she believes should be the goal of good health. Well, you know, the truth is when I started in the 1960s, it was all gee whiz medicine. The newest drug, the newest operation. I mean, that's closing the barn door after the horse has escaped. We want to close the barn door while the horse is still inside it. And so what I see happening now is an attempt, at least, to get people on a trajectory that keeps them healthy as long as humanly possible. I don't see the gee whiz stuff as being very profitable for people, maybe profitable for some company that's making it, you know, their stock prices will go up or whatever. But in fact, what individuals need is a prescription for keeping the God-given health that they were born with. Some of this stuff doesn't seem very cool and sexy, you know, don't smoke, mm. don't eat mm. too much, take exercise. I mean, you've presumably been writing this kind of stuff for many years now. And part of the problem is that because it doesn't sound sexy and it's the same message over and over and over again, the media, and I'm a member of the media and I have fought this battle for many, many decades, don't regard it as something that they want to put in the paper or put on the air. And we cannot stop repeating the message that the quality of your life is in your hands. And if you don't take advantage of it, no one's going to pick up the pieces for you. I always think that if the newspapers reported the number of casualties from smoking-related diseases mm -hmm. in the same way that they cover mm -hmm. you know, accidental atrocities or, or mm -hmm. kind of freak accidents, it should be on the front page every single day. Yeah, and you have to remember that I started writing in 1963, the January 1964, not f I wasn't even working for six months, was the first Surgeon General's report on smoking and health. And that report really nailed the relationship between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. That was all they were talking about in those days, pretty much. 
And yet people did not want to buy into that. They said, well, the tobacco companies were using doctors to endorse their products. It was an outrage when you think about it. But we cannot let go of the importance of repeating the message over and over and over again. We do hear a lot now about the role of genetics in personal health. What's your views there? Well, it turns out that genetics determines how healthy you are in maybe at most 20% of your health quotient is genetically determined. 80% is determined by how you live your life. And so to just say, oh, I can't help it, it's my genetics, is a very flimsy excuse and not an accurate one and not going to help you live better. My personal family history is very high on heart disease. My father, his father, his father's brother, and my brother all have had serious heart conditions. And I took that under advisement. I said, well, this is not gonna happen to me. I am gonna take good care of my heart. And therefore, I was physically active all the time. I tried to eat a healthy diet. I'm not so great about minimizing stress, but you know, I do my best. And I think exercise does help you minimize your stress. But in fact, people who rely upon or use their genetics as their excuse are barking up the wrong tree. So what would be your prescription for a good life? Well, let's start with the most important things, and that is take advantage of your God-given qualities. You can move, move. You can eat, eat healthfully. You can sleep, get enough of it. Because we now know that sleep deficiency is a real problem in modern life. And not only is it a psychological problem, it's a physical problem. And it's an emotional problem. People are not as pleasant when they are sleep deprived. <laughs> and then more broadly, your advice for the healthcare community, people who really do care about people's health and, and developing new ways of improving health. What's your message there? My message is that we have to get that message out to the public front and center. Instead of talking about this new drug and that new treatment and that new this and that new that, let's put our money where our mouths should be. And that is to tell people that they are in charge of their own well-being. And if they don't take charge of their own well-being, it's gonna fall apart. And it does in too many cases. New York Times columnist Jane Brody speaking to me at the Manova Global Health Summit last month. And thanks to the team at Manova and Tunheim for making me so welcome and for all their help. That's all for now. We'll be back next time delving into the past for some more of our 100 ideas in genetics, including finding out if Jurassic Park could really happen after all. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And please, please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference and it does help more people to discover the show. 
Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Kat Arney, and is produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme tune was composed by Dan Pollard. The logo was designed by James Mayle. Transcription is by Viv Andrews and production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.